is Bloomberg Surveillance. The regulatory rules over the last five years have made it very difficult for any bank to optimize their balance sheet. The story as earnings will unfold is everybody will tell you, well, the companies are doing better than we thought. They do every quarter. If you get in oil prices into the 50 to $55 range, you know, we've got 15 billion barrels of resource that's economic. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street, 8 a.m. in Brasilia, and 2 p.m. in Doha, where nothing happened. Talks aimed at capping oil production, as much of a fiction as that was, failed, and oil prices are down. In Brazil, President Dilma Rousseff is impeached. What is somewhat striking about both events, how limited the impact on markets has been. Right now, oil prices are trading at... Uh, $39.05 for West Texas. That's down three and a quarter percent. Brent crude 41.78 off three percent on the day. Equity markets though not reflecting a huge decline. They're lower. The stock 600 in Europe is down by less than a point, about a tenth of a percent. The DAX higher today. Six points up, about a tenth. In the U.S. futures, have been trading in a range uh, right now six points lower for S&P futures. They're off three-tenths. Dow futures are down by 39 points, two-tenths of a percent. And NASDAQ e-mini futures down 11 points, two-tenths as well. In Brazil, a quick check of the real shows that it is a lower for uh, the moment. Uh, give you a quote, uh, 3.5321 actually gone higher after the impeachment of the uh, of, of the president there, my mistake. Uh, the uh, Bovespa has not start uh, has well just started trading, and it is up 15 percent right now, <laughs> up by 816 points. So you can see the reaction in Brazil to what's going on. Adds to the interesting reaction in the markets today. No real flight to safety. The dollar index on the day is lower. And we're looking at uh, euro uh, trading at 113.06, stronger on the day. Uh, the yen is uh, down a little bit, 108.35, of course, an earthquake reaction there. Bonds, little changed on the day. The 10-year note yield unchanged at 1.75%. The five-year unchanged at 1.21%. The two-year just a touch higher, 74 basis points right now. Uh, German two-year is lower the uh, yield uh, a little bit higher, negative 51 basis points. Uh, we also have some earnings just out. Morgan Stanley, 55 cents a share. The consensus of analysts surveyed 47 cents. First quarter revenue of $7.79 billion, better than the consensus of $7.76 billion. Allison Williams covers the banking industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. Allison, uh, I'm also seeing notes that suggest that while the numbers were better than the consensus forecast, they're certainly down from previous performance. They are down, and um, estimates were coming down going into the quarter just because the year had been off to such a rough start. So I guess I would... I would call this beating a lower bar. That's similar to what we've seen at some of the other banks. So revenue coming in, as you pointed out, a bit better than expected. Um, on both, uh, tra- when we look at trading, both fixed income and equity trading coming in a bit better than expected. Uh, but I think another key positive is it looks like costs also better than expected, and that's that's what the stocks have really been reacting to this quarter, because we the environment is tough. We know it's a tough environment. 
but investors want to see that banks are doing what they can to control what they can and really focusing right. on the cost line. Allison, wonderful to have you with us. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you uh, this Monday by Invesco. Markets may be volatile, but Invesco's value managers are finding high conviction opportunities. Find out where at Invesco.com slash interactive. Allison, you've been out front on analyzing Wither Wealth Management and the dynamic of wealth management. Morgan Stanley was way out front. Are they winning at wealth management, or are they catching up to UBS and every other business plan that's out there? Well, I think uh, Morgan Stanley, as, as you pointed out, they were out front in terms of focusing more on the business. I would say maybe the slight difference between UBS and Morgan Stanley is UBS has long been a leader in global wealth management and, and specifically areas like Asia and the emerging markets where there's a lot of long-term growth. Morgan Stanley, uh, as you know, did a very big transaction that increased their share of earnings that come from wealth management, um, specifically the Smith Barney venture, which, you know, they bought more and more of and now have fully, um, have fully owned. And so it's, they're shifting the mix more towards that business, which has been helpful. Um, no one is sort of immune to this tougher environment, so everyone's feeling the pain. But wealth management does tend to be more of a recurring revenue, higher multiple type business. Mm-hmm. Um, this quarter, it looks like their wealth management margin is com- came in at, at 21% again. Just trying to go through the numbers, and their target for that business is a little higher. So I think um, investors are going to be looking for them to bring up that margin throughout the year. Allison Williams covers the banking industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. Morgan Stanley first quarter profit down 53%, but they beat on a per share basis 55 cents. Consensus was for 47, and the shares, Tom, are right now in pre-market trading up 1.9%. There we go. We have an esteemed guest to follow on our discussion uh, this morning. Richard Haas with us with the Council on Foreign Relations. We've got about eight ways to go. I, I guess I've got to go back to your recent travels to South America. Um, you have been very vocal about this is a Brazil distracted by politics that needs to get back to the economics. Is the Lula era over? A 20-year experiment? I don't think it's uh, over in two ways. One is he himself may not be over. He faces all sorts of legal challenges, as you know, but it's not a crazy scenario that he could run and even conceivably win in the 2018 presidential election. So it's too soon to write his political obituary. Second of all, Lulaism uh, is still yeah, a, a powerful like factor in, in Brazilian politics well, and economics. Define what Lulaism is for, for people listening. It's obviously a, a fairly robust, large state role, a large safety net more than, than anything else. The whole Bolsa Familia idea of direct cash payments to Brazilians below a certain level of uh, income and that has transformed Brazilian politics. The problem is now that it's at a level that can't be sustained. So for Lulaism to survive, it would actually have to be reformed. And I think the real question is, will the opposition be willing to do that? And what kind of a political price will the vice yeah. president and those around them pay if they actually do Mike, that? Mike, does Ambassador Haas know that if we steal a phrase from someone like Lulaism, he gets a royalty check? <laughs> yes, and you're going to be signing those checks on a regular basis going forward here. Uh, I was hoping for fuzzy dice or something. <laughs> as, we, as, as we look at what happens in Brazil going forward, you have to ask, 
was Lulaism a failure, or is it a failure of those who are in office? More, more the latter. I think the actual introduction of it was important. It brought a lot of Brazilians out of poverty, maybe into kind of a lower middle class uh, life. That was all to the good. The idea of having a social na- safety net is, uh, is obviously a welcome idea. What happened was it got out of control, particularly under his successor, under the, on President Rousseff. It bloated the entire public uh, sector, and on top of that, you had a degree of corruption. The Salulaism also came to mean not just a large role of the state in the economy, but a large the, the potential for corruption became uh, a temptation that people couldn't resist, particularly with the state-owned oil company, but, but more broadly. Salulaism mm-hmm. led not just to a large safety net, but an overly large safety net, and then a massive corruption. Later on in the program, we're going to have uh, one of your experts from CFR, Shannon O'Neill, come. Uh, break down some of the, the real nitty-gritty specifics of what happens next in Brazil. We but call I'm, that the real nitty-gritty. The, the real nitty-gritty, exactly. Uh, I, I'm interested in what it means for South America, for Latin America as a whole. It's a great question. There's actually two narratives in South America right now. One is the one of a large state sector, and that represents Brazil, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, and I think that's in remission. I think that is historically now fighting a larger tide of one of a reduced state role, a little bit more of a market, more democratic, and I think more than anyone else, it's President Macri in Argentina who represents the alternative tendency, but we've also seen it in Colombia, Chile, to some extent Mexico. So you have two narratives in in the Americas, and the much more powerful, and I would argue much more attractive narrative, is this one towards greater degree of markets, greater degree of democracy. Well, does that mean that... uh there is a turn towards the capitalist model, or is it just uh, you know that the, the, the big state sector is kind of out? In other words, it did one side win and the other lose. Well, again, I think the the, the sense is that the the state sector dominant has gone too far. It leads to uh, corruption inefficiency economically, lower growth and corruption, and instead we're seeing the reaction. I think the most interesting person to watch is President Macri in Argentina, the kinds of reforms he is doing. So he has become important, not just for his country, but actually for the entire region. If Macri succeeds, it actually has a tremendous momentum effect beyond Argentina's borders. Unfortunately, 15 seconds. Would you go to the Olympics in Rio, or will they be, I mean, are they going to be like a stable mega event or not? I mean, personally, I was hoping to make it in the pole vault, and it didn't work out this year, yeah. so I won't be going personally. Uh, I think you got to worry about Zika and mosquitoes, and I think, you know, just the lack of infrastructure. It's not going to be an easy event to go to. I, I'm just trying to get up here as quick as I can, Oberlin track, and somehow I can't get it up. Richard Haas, thank you so much, as always, with the Council on Foreign Relations. Marcus Churning. It's 710 on Wall Street. This hour of surveillance brought to you by Palisade Dowdy. Visit PalisadeDowdy.com. Here's Michael Barr with news headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. A hot-button immigration issue is before the Supreme Court for oral arguments today. The Obama administration is asking the justices to allow two programs that could shield roughly 4 million people from deportation and make them eligible to work in the U.S. Texas is leading 26 mostly Republican states in opposition. Tomorrow is the New York primary. Frontrunners Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton are hoping to put some distance between themselves and their competitors. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff's future is in even greater doubt today after the Chamber of Deputies voted to open impeachment proceedings. It will be up to the Senate to put her on trial. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? 
Michael Barr, thanks so much. Oberlin College, track and field at the All-Ohio Championships, hosted by Ohio Wesleyan. We'll have more on that coming up. Bloomberg Surveillance on Oberlin Sports. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by your Tri-State BMW centers. Visit them online at tristatebmw.com. At BMW, they make only one thing, the ultimate driving machine. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Eisner Amper, Hedge Week Institutional Investor, All Credit Intelligence. Fund managers reading these publications rank Eisner Amper high for excellence in client service. Find out why, EisnerAmper.com slash excellence. Morgan Stanley saying first quarter profit dropped 53% as revenue from trading and underwriting securities declined. Shares are higher in early trading, up 2% as profit was better than analysts were looking for. PepsiCo posted first quarter profit that also beat analyst estimates. S&P E-mini futures down 7 points this morning. Dow E-mini futures down 45. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 13. The 10-year Treasury up 230 seconds. The yield 1.74%. NYMEX crude oil dropping down 3.6% or $1.46. To 38.90 a barrel. Comex Gold is up four tenths percent, or four dollars eighty cents, to 12.39.40 an ounce. The euro, a dollar thirteen oh seven. The yen, one oh eight point three six. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Good Monday morning, everyone. On economics, finance, investment, on international relations. Michael McKee and Tom Keen, we welcome all of you to what I think will be the most interesting week. Michael, why don't you pick it up with your observations on oil, which broke yesterday? Well, there was supposed to be uh, some sort of agreement to limit production coming out of this Doha meeting. did not happen. Saudi Arabia, which uh, had said it wanted to put something in place, suddenly took a hard line over the weekend. And uh, I'm wondering, Richard Haas, uh, Richard is with us. For, he's the president, of course, of the Council on Foreign Relations. What this says about Saudi Arabia, Iran, OPEC, and the Middle East in general. Well, start with the last. What the Middle East tells you about is that there are more fault lines in the Middle East than there are in any other geologic formation. And by that, I mean these are political fault lines. And one of the most powerful and pronounced is the Persian Sunni and the Shia Sunni, and in this case, Iran-Saudi fault lines. And they can't agree on anything, particularly the Saudis see see Iran as their greatest geopolitical threat, even more, say, than a group like, like ISIS. And in order for a cartel like OPEC to work, there has to be a bit of trust, a, li- a little bit of confidence that others will observe whatever limits in production or output are set. And obviously that, that such trust is non-existent. Yeah, people have been saying that OPEC is falling apart. This would seem to suggest it has almost no credibility left. It's got very little, and also its share of global oil is a little bit less given the United States, given Russia. Two of the three largest oil producers are now the United States and Russia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is simply uh, you know, one of the top three. So, yeah, I think o- OPEC's stranglehold over world oil is less than it was simply mathematically, and then the internal politics are much weaker than they were. When we look at oil, part of it is demand. Yeah, CFR, I mean, I remember a moment at CFR where you had Edward Morse and other worthies up on stage, and you could hear a pin drop in the, the room. You know, it's supply, 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 Doha and all this. We have to use this stuff. Does CFR have a structural belief that we're just not going to use this stuff someday? 
Well, CFR doesn't have structural beliefs in anything. We don't take institutional positions. Uh, I think you know, the predictions that oil will be eliminated from the global yeah. economy, are it's going to be much slower and much less than people always say. Uh, mo- almost every prediction about oil, can I say, is wrong. Uh, I don't care what it is. It's always wrong, whether it's price, whether it's supply, whether it's peak this or elimination that. So, sure, you know, I think alternatives will play a larger role. But the biggest reason right now that, you know, demand is down is, is, is economic. Uh, but a sideshow is the fact that alternatives are, be, are going from kind of peripheral to increasingly uh, significant. But, no, the, the oil era will last far longer than the, than the pundits and the predictors uh, uh, you know, are well, saying. Let me ask you, then, will the Saudi uh, government, uh, the, the family control over Saudi Arabia, last as long as oil you're talking about? That's, that's a fair question. I'm skeptical. I think the Saudis face enormous challenges. One, from the low, uh, the low, low value, the low price of oil. Second of all, they've overreached significantly in Yemen. I keep saying this is Saudi Arabia's Vietnam. Their royal infighting is really bad, about generational succession. I think also corruption is significant. And this is a very digital society. So if you're a group like ISIS, I actually think Saudi Arabia is somewhat of a, a vulnerable target. And as ISIS loses territorial control yeah. in places like Syria, I would not be surprised if, if their yeah. next big play is for Saudi Arabia. We have a fabulous international audience. And Mohammed tweeted to me, and I had to, out on Twitter, correct. It was Mike, it was a massive surveillance correction. I was vamping, you know, earlier this morning on the genealogy of the royal family. And I said, he's his great-grandfather, that's baloney. King Faisal is the brother of Salman, the present king. I forgot that. I mean, it's amazing the, the almost longitude of the royal family. Yeah, Salman is the last of the generation, and yeah, that's why now that the wrong. succession struggle is between the crown prince and the deputy crown prince, because that represents, if you will, whether you go to the half-next generation or really, really whether you skip a generation or two, and that's not just personality competition, but it's generational competition in Saudi Arabia. We could do hours on this, and unfortunately we only have two minutes, so... Uh, I guess sum it up with with kind of a forecast for what happens. You say ISIS could target Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has one of the harshest forms of uh, Islam in place. I mean, would the people there want that, or would they prefer to have things loosened up? This is one of the ironies of history. Saudi Arabia came into being, if you will, from a desert political reform movement, the Wahhabis and so forth, and the idea was to bring this rather pure form of Islam to the peninsula. Well, that will be ISIS's refrain, that Saudi Arabia has grown fat and corrupt, westernized, and you, know, you have 10,000 princes who are on the, the public dole, and they're going to argue that they're, they're going to bring back this pure form of Islam. And I actually think that will appeal to, to a significant mm-hmm. percentage of these young Saudi men who are under or unemployed and who are frustrated by uh, what they see as a pretty empty future. I want you to sell a guess that we've got forward here. Shannon O'Neill has been just wonderful on something bigger and broader than just Argentina or Brazil. Explain her value holistically looking at all of South America and Latin America. 
Well, Shannon O'Neill is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's our leading expert on Latin America. She's probably one of the country's leading experts on Mexico. But what I think she can do as well or better than anyone is, is talk about uh, the various competing political, intellectual, yeah. economic trends in the Americas. And that's what I would have her do. That, was that good, Mike? I mean, I, told, I mean, we could just take a coffee break right now. And uh, Shannon just called <clears throat> the check is in the mail. <laughs> Richard Haas, thank you so much for the Council on Foreign Relations. And everything from Shannon O'Neill's virtues to Oberlin College pole vaulting. A young lad did 14 feet, 14 for Oberlin at the Ohio medley. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Land Rover. Adventures yours for the taking. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special lease and financing offers. Land Rover, above and beyond. Here's Peter Van.